to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. So glad that you're with us today as we close out our series called Dear God, Tough Questions That We Have to Be Able to Answer for Ourselves and for Those Around Us. If you have your Bibles this morning, take them to Colossians chapter 2 today. Today I'm going to talk to you about biblical Christianity and culture conflict. Biblical Christianity and culture conflict. Let me ask you just a kind of a quick survey today. How many of you see the conflict in culture today? Would you just raise your hand if you can see it? And I think most of us can see the extreme conflict in culture today, and we can see the clash with biblical Christianity and where culture is headed today. Now, this series has been a great series. We've walked through questions like, uh, does hell exist? Or how can a good God allow suffering to take place in people's lives? We actually ask the question, how can God bless any nation, but how can it bless America? We asked that question back in early July. We dealt with the issue of transgenderism. What is transgenderism? How does the Christian interact with those that are walking through that transgender movement? How do we respond to that? And one of the most frequently asked questions was a question that deals with culture that we have today. Like one of the questions I got from the survey was, so what do we do with all the woke ideology? How do we face uh, intersectionality? How do we deal with CRT and some of the race ideologies that we have today? How do we think through that, make decisions about that? Where do we stand in regard to all those things that are swirling around us in modern day America that maybe we haven't ever seen or ever dealt with before? And instead of trying to answer every one of those questions, I'm going to give you one answer for all of them today. How do you look at the world through a biblical lens and deal with all the things we're dealing with? Colossians chapter 2, 6 is where we begin today. Uh, If you have your Bibles and you're ready, let's stand together if you would. I'm going to read God's Word today from chapter 2, verse 6 and following. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, dealing with the same kinds of things that we're talking about today in our world. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So he begins by saying, look, in the same way you accepted Christ by faith, that's how your faith walk is going to take place, by faith. And then he goes on and says something in a negative sense here. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive. Now, those are actually battle words. These are words about warfare that's happening. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And then he comes back around and talks about the sufficiency of what it means to be in Christ. And here's what he says. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. If you can't get excited about that verse, you are not alive today. In Jesus Christ, in him, 
all the fullness of the Godhead, all, all the fullness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell in bodily form in Jesus Christ. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So much more, but we'll stop there. What a passage that we can look at today. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you will illuminate this text for us today because we need to know what it means to stand on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in life. And Father, help us to know how we view what's going on around us from the perspective of the sufficiency of Jesus. Father, my prayer today is that you will help us see like we haven't seen before. Help us understand like we haven't understood before, and only you can accomplish that in any of our lives. So we ask you to do that, and we thank you for it. We ask all this in Jesus' name, and our God's people said, Amen. 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 Please be seated if you would. So what about all these ideologies? You know, I saw something the other day that, um, that you probably have seen. It's been on social media. And it says something like this. If Paul saw the church in America, we'd be getting a letter. And I think that's a good line. But the letter we might be getting is this one. The letter to the church at Colossae. And the reason that we'd be getting that kind of letter is because of what was going on in the church at Colossae. It's the same thing that's going on in our world today. Paul was writing to address false understandings, heresies about Jesus Christ himself that mirrors modern-day thinking. Greek culture accepted Jesus as a good teacher, as a moral agent, as, as a moral influence, but not as God. There were so many other gods that they worshipped, so many other philosophies they embraced, but they did not embrace Jesus Christ as God. And if they didn't embrace him as God, then the next thing that they concluded was everything he did and affirmed was optional and not absolute. And I'll tell you this today, if, if you don't embrace Jesus as God in the flesh, then everything he says is optional. You can take it or leave it. But if everything he said, if, if he is God, everything he said is absolute and not optional. It's, it's, it's truth. And what Paul is writing to the church of Colossians about, about is this idea of who Jesus is and the fact that he needs to be taken, not just seriously, but for who he really is. I'm going to summarize chapter 1 real quick. Paul says to that church, Christ is not only God, but he's creator, he's center of the universe, and reconciler of mankind. Think about that. Christ is not just some moral teacher. He is creator, and Colossians 1 talks about that. He is the center of the universe. He holds all things together, and he's the reconciler of mankind to God. If you jump back to chapter 1, you'll see it all in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. And that, notice this next slide. All things have been created through him and for him. And then it concludes that section by saying he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things means all. All things hold together. So if Christ is God, he determines how biblical Christians are to live and believe no matter what culture says. 
He helps frame the biblical worldview through which we view what's going on around us, Christ and the Scripture. And that helps us be placed in the scope of where things are and how things work. That's really important for us to understand the two key things going on in this passage. And then I'm going to spend some time after talking about the second thing that he gives us in this text. And I'm going to kind of break it down in terms of how to apply the culture today and how it frames our worldview of how we view things. This will be an important time for us together today because I hope when you leave this room today, you'll view things out there differently maybe than you viewed it before. So let's notice the first two keys that he gives us. First of all, it's embrace the person and truth of Jesus by faith. Just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I love that's where this starts. Everything about your stability, everything about uh, the balance in your life, everything about the way you view everything around you is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. And how did we begin that relationship with Jesus Christ? By faith. By faith. Jesus often talked about having the faith like a child, childlike faith. When you and I came to faith in Jesus, it wasn't through the complexity of religion, was it? When we came to faith in Jesus, it wasn't because we read all the books of the Bible and accumulated the whole theological uh, doctrine in our minds or, or learned the terminology and the semantics of, of doctrine and theology. It's not how we came to faith in Christ. We came to faith in Christ knowing that he died on the cross for us, paid for our sin, and we knew we needed forgiveness and salvation. So with childlike faith, we placed our trust and faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. Thank God it's that simple because that's the only way we can come. But in the same way that you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord Paul now says, walk in him with that same simple childlike faith that says, I may not understand everything that's going on around me, but I know who built this universe, and I know who it's for, and I know who holds all things together, and it's Jesus. So first of all, he says, embrace the person of Christ. It's a really, really huge thing. He goes on. And he says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed. In other words, grow your roots down deep and let those roots nourish you and build you up strong in the faith that's in Jesus Christ. Roots are important to be built up, right? Got to have those roots going down deep. You know that if you ever tried to take a tree out of your front yard the way I did a few years ago. My wife one day walked outside the front porch where we, where we live, and she looked over to the left, and there was this growth of bushes and shrubs and crepe myrtle trees. And, uh, and she said, you know, we need to get rid of these and build a porch. Let's pour a concrete porch out here. So we thought it was a great idea, and I called some concrete contractors and said, hey, we need to build a porch out here, a poor porch. And they came out, gave us an estimate. It was reasonable. And they said, but the first thing you have to do is you have to remove all those trees and all those shrubs and all those bushes. And I thought, that, that's a job for a guy like me. I like to destroy things. I'm going to destroy this thing. That's how I got started. I think it's going to take me a day. I got the shrubs out in a day. I got the bushes out in a day, but the crepe myrtle tree does not want to go. And I'm cutting most of the limbs off of it, and now I'm just dealing with the roots, and I do everything, including back my truck up and hook up the chain to the bumper and try to pull it out and nearly strip out my transmission trying to get those roots out. They would not come out. 
I used axes and chainsaws and shovels, and I got down deep, and I cut down everything I could around the tree, and I, I got it to wobble a little bit, but later on concluded that there was a root that went straight down that I couldn't see, and I, I couldn't get it out. Finally, I got about a 10-foot iron bar, a pole about 10 foot long, weighed about 150 pounds, and I started prying, chopping and prying and chopping and prying, and, I, and I, I, I'm not kidding you. At one point, I literally thought I was going to die in that front yard trying to get that root out. And I told my wife, if, if, if I die, it'll be in the front yard right here. It'll be because you wanted that tree gone. <laughs> I finally came out, and it was gone, and we could move forward. Now, I tell that story because I want you to know it ought to be at least that hard to carry you away from the sufficiency of Christ. Your roots ought to be at least that deep. And they ought to be going down so deep that you'll be built up so strong that it won't be an easy task to move you away from the truth and the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. You need to be rooted down deep and you need to be built up with great strength. That tree spent years doing that in Texas summers and it made it strong. And you and I have to do that in life. Let me just give you some pointers here, I think, some, some thoughts about being rooted down. Your faith grows over time, day by day. It's not just one experience. It's not just uh, going to a series of services. Uh, it's not reading one book. It's day by day, moment by moment. Your roots go down deep like that. Secondly, your roots grow as you are exposed to prayer and the Word of God. The more you expose yourself to prayer and the Word of God, the more God works in your life growing those roots deeper. You talk to Him. You build your faith and what you're asking of him and what he's asking of you. You read God's word and, and it shapes your understanding of who he is and how he works and what he's doing in your life. And I promise you, your roots won't keep growing if you don't keep exposing yourself to the nutrients that I'm talking about of prayer and the word of God. Then thirdly, your faith grows by knowing Christ's character and trusting his commands. You grow by faith by walking by faith. God asks us to do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do, but he does that so we can learn to depend on his sufficiency. We are complete in him. He has all authority and all the power. We can trust him. But you grow in your faith when you exercise your faith in trusting in him. Here's what you want to be. You want to be Psalm 1-1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Lots of insights here. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Isn't that a great psalm? It's a great way to start the whole book of Psalms. Be planted by that river. Let your roots go deep. Be built up and established in your faith. Do it day by day. Make it the priority of your life. Because only when you are able to stand on that kind of foundation and only when you build on those kinds of roots are you able to withstand the tsunami waves and the whirlwinds of different ideas in our world today. And that brings Paul to his second point, And that is embrace or rather resist the principles of the world by faith. You embrace the person of Jesus Christ. You resist the principles of the world by faith. And again, I come back to that battle phrase. Verse 8 begins with the phrase, see, see to it that no one takes you captive. You know what that phrase means. 
Invading armies would come in, and if they captivated the city, they carried away people to be their slaves, to be their workers, to be their family members sometimes. And they just dragged them away. They took them away from what they were familiar with. They removed them from their homes and their families and their cities. They took them captive. It's a battle term. So Paul adds to this embrace Jesus idea this other idea. And the other idea is you can be captivated by all these different things if you're not deeply rooted in Christ. If you're not clear on what you believe about Jesus. And then he gives these different ideas. See to it that no one takes you captive through, and look at the text itself, the word philosophy. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then there's empty deception. And according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and here's the big deal, and not according to Christ. You're going to hear a, a variety of ideas from a variety of voices, but Paul says don't be taken captive by any of those voices, especially because they contradict Christ and not according to Christ. That really puts a blanket, kind of an umbrella over all of them. So we embrace Christ, but we do not embrace deceptive thinking. The spiritually healthy person will grow deep in truth and they will resist the deception of worldly thinking. Both are important to your spiritual growth. It's a massive warning about whatever ideas that come along, about whatever subjects you have to be able to resist because you've already got your answer, and that answer is found in Christ. These terms mean something that was not only applicable in that day and time, but that hasn't changed much. For example, philosophy is the current wisdom of the age, and specifically a philosophy that's contrary to biblical truth. The idea of empty deception means a fruitless and unproven speculation, a promise that will solve things, a promise that says, hey, this is the solution to what we see going on around us, but it's empty. It doesn't build fruit, and it's not based on absolute truth. The tradition of men is a pretty clear idea. The idea is an idea or practice or theory that is man-made and not finding its origins in divine truth. And I've got to tell you today, even though you know this, your life is not a laboratory where you experiment with man-made ideas about how to live life. This world is not a laboratory where you experiment with worldly ideas about what makes things happen in a good way or a bad way. We know what the Bible says. We know what it teaches us. It's interesting that in the Bible, the contrast between divine wisdom and human wisdom is very, very stark, very stark. For example, in James chapter 3, verse 15, he's talking about the wisdom that comes from above and then the wisdom that doesn't come from above. And James, of course, is a straight shooter, and he says this really, really clearly. He says this in contrasting the two kinds of wisdom. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly and natural and demonic. I don't think you can get further apart on the two ends of the spectrum. James, in talking about godly or spiritual wisdom, biblical wisdom, we would say as well, is contrasting all the other kind of wisdom as earthly, as natural, and as demonic. Natural usually has a pretty good, pretty good connotation. We like natural things, but natural wisdom is sinful wisdom. It's, it's birthed in the sinfulness of mankind, the selfishness of mankind, and not in the perfect character of Jesus Christ. 
So I know that at times we look at these different ideas swirling around and we ask the question, is no wisdom helpful to us? Is no human wisdom any good for us? Is it not worthwhile at all? And my answer is always going to be not if that kind of wisdom contradicts biblical truth. You can weigh everything else that you hear, read about, but if it contradicts biblical truth, absolute truth that we find in the Scriptures, then it's not divine, it's human. And it originates with a fallen premise from the beginning. It will not work in your life the way God's principles will. And that brings me to really the big application of all that I've said so far today. How does the believer think through the challenges? How do we think through the challenges of life and culture? How do we think about things spiritually? How do we think about them socially? How do we think about this different ideologies that we hear about relationally? How, how, how about culture solutions to the problems that we're facing today? What about our community? What about our nation? How do we evaluate ideas and movements? How do we know if we're on the right track or not? So hopefully I can answer all those questions with one answer. You need to pray for me if that's what you think I'm trying to do here. <laughs> the greatest lens a person can view the world through is through a biblical worldview. The greatest way to evaluate and discern all these things that you'll hear about, and you'll hear about these for the rest of your life, and they're increasing. Just wait till artificial intelligence gets a hold of it, folks. They're going to give you all kinds of ideas that are not only not man-made, neither are they divinely given. All kinds of things are going to come across our path. We need a biblical worldview. We need to be able to see with the lens that helps us see clearly. How many of you in the room use corrective lenses on your eyes? You know, glasses, contact lens, something like that. I need my contacts. When I was about 12 or 13, I realized that I needed some help. I couldn't see things very well. My parents figured it out. And uh, I remember getting some glasses and then later on contacts, and I depend on them heavily. I depend on them in a big way. I mean, I can look at this room today and not, not even recognize one face in this room without my contact lens. I'm sure you're all great looking. You're better looking without my contact lens. <laughs> because when I've got the right lens on, I can see everything really clearly. Really clearly. Now, that's how lenses work. Worldviews are like that. Looking at something from a biblical worldview puts a lens that you can look through and discern whether something is this or that, divine or demonic. You can see whether it's just helpful insight someone's trying to provide or something that God has actually given us as a principle to live by. Only a biblical worldview will let you do that. So what kind of a, of a view is a biblical worldview? Now before I dive into a diagram that I'm going to spend the next few moments of my message in, I want to refer you back to the message I preached last week. Last week I preached a message about how can we know that the Bible is divine and not human in origin. And I gave you four reasons why. We know beyond doubt that the Bible is divine rather than human in origin. We found that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. And we walked through that text and spent a lot of time on a statement that really helped us uh, embrace the Bible as the Word of God. And basically, I framed it in one sentence, and that is, it's a collection of historical documents confirmed by eyewitnesses. That's the first part of that. Everything we have in the Bible was actually seen 
not only by the eyewitnesses that ultimately wrote about it, but seen by other eyewitnesses who read those accounts. It's a book that details supernatural life change in a way that can only be divine and only be done by God. It also is filled with prophecies made and fulfilled that can only be done with a supernatural element to them, most of them in the life of Jesus Christ. And because of those and other evidence, archaeologically, we can have confidence it's divine and not human in origin. When people say to me, how can you believe the Bible because it's just a book written by man? I have that answer for them. Men can't make prophecy come to pass. Men can't have eyewitness accounts that they just create out of nothing. Men can't bring supernatural change in people's lives. Only God can do all that. And all those things make me have confidence in the Bible, the Word of God that I hold in my hands and that you have in your hands. So I reference back to that as I walk into this worldview conversation for just a few moments. And the question I want to ask you today is the most important question, and that is who determines truth and how do we respond to it in modern life? So I want you to look at the screen for just a few moments, and I'm going to ask the question that's going to be a big question today. Did God create and did God communicate? Did God create and did God communicate? You know, we have a healthy home emphasis, and in that healthy home emphasis, we, we emphasize five questions as the five questions that are life-changing for everybody at any time in history until Christ comes back. And the first one is, who is God and what is truth? Who is God and what is truth? You answer that question, you're well on your way to having a good understanding of truth and how God is at work if you answer that question correctly. So here's my question for you today. Did God create and did God communicate? There we have a God in heaven who created the heavens and the earth, just like we read in, in Colossians chapter 1. And did he give us the Bible as the Word of God? Now, that's the first question. You know that 20% of America believe that. 20% in a recent poll believe that the Bible is God's perfect Word to us. It's not only accurate, but it is Absolute. And that's the first result of answering correctly with a yes. Did God create and did God communicate? You're going to conclude that the Bible is accurate and it's absolute. Now, I told you last week that 10 years ago, 30% in America, by the same poll, believe that's true. But now only 20% believe that's true. And I'm going to tell you the implications of that in just a few moments. If you believe that the Bible is accurate and absolute, there's another understanding that you're going to, to, to build on and to, and to agree on, and that is that the Bible addresses individual responsibility and accountability. While God speaks to the world, while he speaks to the nations, he primarily speaks to the individual, doesn't he? Jesus didn't die on the cross for the whole world, but for the whole world individually. He died on the cross for you. When God speaks to the Word, He does address nations, but He addresses you as an individual. And you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one by one. It won't be Cross City Church on a Sunday morning standing before God. You're going to stand before Him one on one. There's individual responsibility and accountability that comes before God because of what God has said. The Scripture is accurate. It's absolute. So it, it's binding in our lives. And if you believe that, then you'll also believe that the gospel loves, convicts, and changes individuals. I love this fact about the gospel. 
that Jesus did die for all, and that meant you and you and you and you and you and you and you, and I can go all throughout this room. Jesus died on the cross for every single individual. We often say something like, he had you on his mind when he died on that cross. And you and I can't understand that humanly speaking, but divinely speaking, God could know and did know each of us as he died on the cross. It's all personal. He loves you, and his word convicts you, and he will change your life as an individual. And if you believe that, then you'll also believe that changed individuals influence society. Now, this becomes very important to us because if changed individuals influence society and God works through individuals we really need to know what it means to become salt and light, how to share the gospel, how to live in a way that's like Jesus called us to live. The biblical worldview says those are the avenues through which God works. And if there are ideas that he works in radically different ways, we have to come back and test the biblical worldview that I've laid out for you. Now, I'm going I'm to give you this concession. This is extremely simple. It is extremely general. But it categorizes in large categories what God has revealed to us. You say, well, what about that other 30% you talked to us about? You know, 20% believe the Bible is the Word of God. What about the other side of that spectrum? The other side of that spectrum is the 30% of people in America that answer no to the question, did God create and communicate? 30%. Now, that's grown in the last 10 years from 20% on this end to 30%. In other words, there's an increasing number of people that do not believe that God created, that do not believe in the existence of God, and that do not believe that God spoke. And so what are their conclusions? How do they see things? Well, first of all, if you're in that category, you believe that society determines truth and solutions. In other words, it's, it's society as a whole, culture as a whole. Whatever we can agree on as a culture becomes our truth. And, and when we have enough to agree upon our truth, then that becomes the defining truth of a culture or of a society. If you don't think that that's accurate, look at your world today at what is right and wrong in the eyes of culture. It's radically different from what the Bible says. And if you believe that society defines truth, and offer solutions, then you'll also believe that the responsibility or the focus ought to be to hold society responsible. We're not going to try to hold individuals responsible because we don't know what's going on in individual life, but we're going to hold society responsible. In other words, if a large enough group of people do something that seems to be harmful, we're going to try to hold all that society responsible for whatever that might be without individual consideration. It becomes a very common conversation today uh, when people want things to change in the world as a whole but are really unwilling to do anything about that problem that they perceive individually. They want everybody else to change because that's the philosophy of not having a God and not having individual responsibility. Thirdly, if you believe that, then society affirms or condemns. Now, let me ask you today, can you think of who is being condemned by society today more than any other group of people? If you answer the word Christian, you'd be correct. Why are Christians found in such poor esteem in the world today? It's because the values have changed because a greater number of people have no love for the Word of God. And they know that they have the power to affirm or condemn groups of people. I'm not only a Christian, I'm an old white man. So that really puts me in the, in the spectrum of that lens, of that, that target. 
Old white men, by the way, are often condemned as well. And I'm not really trying to get into political realms. I'm getting into cultural conversations by talking about that. These are, these are the way people believe and think. And if you agree with that, then you'll also agree that the only way to change the world is through cultural or social revolution. We have to turn this thing upside down to get our desired outcomes. We have to shut down other voices and make things radically different. You know, those four things that I'm describing on that side of the, of the picture are products of postmodernism and secularism, and even at the bottom, Marxism, if you will, because that's the only way to really get things to change. So you look at these, and then you say, well, there's a big gap in the middle there, isn't there? And there's a big gap in the middle, and it's the 50% gap. The 50% gap are those that do not believe that the Bible is accurate and absolute, but they also don't believe that, that there is no God, and they don't believe that society defines everything. They're in the maybe category, and 50% of people are in that, in that category. It's really interesting that the movement is, as you look at the screen, from left to right. And if you're in that maybe category, you're saying things like this, well, the Bible is helpful, but it's not absolute. In other words, it's kind of inspirational. I like to read the Psalms. I like to read Proverbs. I like to read some of the stories in the Bible. But if it's, if it's speaking about my sin or my shortcomings or things I want to do that, that I don't want to hear that I shouldn't do, no, it's not absolute then. That's the largest percentage of people in America today. And it's growing rapidly, sometimes from the 20 percentile the Bible is accurate and absolute. They're moving over to say the Bible is helpful, but not absolute. You know, it's not a very long distance from that block to the one on the far right that says society defines truth and offers solutions. If the Bible's not absolute, then if it's an old archaic book, if it's not really divinely inspired, if it's not really God who knows anything about this world today, if it's not that, then before long you're going to be over there saying, well, it's, uh, it's, it's culture that tells us what to do. And in the maybe category, if you believe the Bible is helpful but not absolute, your focus will be on society and that individual sin. If the Bible's not absolute, then we don't have to handle the uncomfortable text. We don't have to deal with the uncomfortable principles. So we'll focus on society. It's so much easier to condemn a society than it is to deal with the conviction of the heart. So much easier. And if you believe that, then... Ultimately, you're going to say the gospel only loves it doesn't convict. And basically removes the power of the gospel. I love that Jesus died on the cross, but Jesus did not die on the cross to change my life. He just died on the cross to affirm me, to love me. And you'd be only half right. He died on the cross to love you. He did not die on the cross to affirm whatever life you have. He died on the cross to give you a new life, his life. But if you're in that middle category where the Bible is just a maybe for you, the gospel only loves, it doesn't convict, and there's only one conclusion, and here's the conclusion. The church merges with society, and it's not different in any sense of the word. That is a pretty convicting picture. That has implications as to why we need to embrace truth with our whole heart. The same things that Paul said in Colossians 2, embrace the person of Jesus Christ by faith. Resist the pull 
of all these man-made principles and ideologies. Look at things through the lens of a biblical worldview. So let me give you some principles that we'll end with today. How do we deal with cultural conflict? First of all, we've got to cling tightly to the Scripture for absolute truth about life. Cling tightly to the Scripture. If you don't have enough information to fully anchor yourself in the Bible as the Word of God that's absolute and accurate, spend more time in there. Make sure you study it thoroughly. Make sure you dig deep archaeologically and historically and in terms of prophecy and everything else until you can rest on that spot and say by faith, this book is accurate, it's absolute, I'm going to build my life on it. Otherwise, you have no anchor in a tsunami wave of culture. No anchor. I don't know if you've ever looked into the anchoring systems of big cruise ships. Did you know some of those anchors are 40 tons as big as a house? And they drop those anchors down when the storm blows because it's the only way they can protect themselves from the wind and the waves and everything that's going to happen in the storm. I'm telling you, the Word of God is your anchor in life. I'm telling you, the sufficiency of Jesus is the only thing that will anchor you in the worst of the storms of life. And you haven't seen the worst yet, but they're coming. So, cling tightly to the Scripture for absolute truth about life. Scripture is your anchor. Remember verse 10 of Colossians chapter 2. In Him you are complete. You're not complete in some new idea that comes along. And that's what the Greeks and the people at Colossae were dealing with. They were looking for some great new idea. That's not what will complete you. Your creator will complete you. He'll complete you through the gospel and through his presence. Number two, trust the power of the gospel to change lives and societies. You want your world to change? The gospel is your ship by which change takes place. One of the greatest stories of gospel change is the man John Newton. It's a fascinating story. He was raised by a sailor. He grew up to be a sailor and later on a ship captain, later on owner of a ship, and became a slave trader back in the days of slavery in England in the previous century. And he was guilty of transporting slaves to England. So this man was wicked to the core. I mean, he was doing everything as wicked and uh, with as much evil as possible with no sensitivity, no awareness of what he was doing at all. But one day during a storm on the sea, he feared for his life, fell to his knees, repented of his sins, put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And according to John Newton, his view of the slave trade changed immediately. And he stopped doing what he was doing. And he joined forces with a man named William Wilberforce. And in England, they overturned and made illegal slavery in England during that period of time. And, and I share his story to remind you that the gospel loves and convicts and changes individuals who in turn influences culture. That's the way it works. One man. One man did that by the power of the gospel. So trust the power of the gospel. And when we talk about sharing the gospel, when we talk about inviting people to hear the gospel or having conversations about the gospel, you're changing the world. You're changing the world by changing their life first. And thirdly, remember your importance in a very dark world of shining light and preserving culture. Remember your importance as believers in Jesus Christ 
and shining light and preserving culture. Some, some will say, you know, it's so discouraging to live in a world that doesn't believe like what I believe in. And I know that's true. It's a dark world. It's a world where people don't understand some of the things that you understand. But it's a great, great place to shine light. It's a great place to shine light. And I think our view ought to be, Lord, you have placed us in this nation, in this community, for such a time as this. I need to shine brightly, as brightly as I can. What was it Jesus said? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Go back and read that Matthew 5 passage. It's just incredible in its power and its simplicity as to what we're called to do. In the case it's not obvious, modern culture is self-destructive. It's always going to move towards destruction. It's never going to be able to right itself in any case. And you may not be able to right it either, but you can shine light and you can preserve life through being saw and light in the world that you're in. Your presence alone preserves and convicts. And just like salt keeps food from from growing inedible, so Christianity preserves the culture as much as it can, slows down the breakdown of society so we can help people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, doesn't that kind of defeat? Aren't we supposed to try to preserve society and save society and save culture and, and make it all right so that everybody lives happily ever after? That's not earth where everybody lives happily ever after. That's a coming kingdom that Jesus is going to bring himself. This world will not be here forever. And neither will you, thank God. You'll be with him. Our goal is not to preserve culture. Our goal is to preserve truth and to make sure we live the light and the salt that we be called to live by. Boy, we have a challenge in front of us, don't we? But remember what he said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. In him you're complete. You've got all you need to face that challenge at the workplace, in the family, in society, by growing deep roots and embracing Christ. I'm being built up and resisting all of the waves of ideology and standing firm on what God's called us to do. I'm confident because I've seen it happen over and over in history. It's even happening now. God works through the remnant he works through the few, and he works through you. In just a few moments, I'm going to give you an invitation, and that invitation is going to be threefold. We have decision stations at the back uh, of our building, and I invite you to stop there. You know, we've talked about a lot of different things today, but the most important thing you need to remember walking out of here is the idea that you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ through what he's done on the cross. He absolutely offers that to you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we're here to talk to you about that at our decision stations in just a moment. I'll dismiss us. And as you walk out, stop and talk to us. Secondly, I invite you to guest reception room. It's just outside the center exit doors across the hallway. If you're a guest today, if you're visiting, I would love to talk with you, meet you personally, and I'll just share a few things with you about our church that I think will be helpful. And then thirdly, I invite you to come back next week, a very special week, open house, um, food trucks. For those of you that love food trucks, I love food trucks. And so come back and you can, you can eat here on the grounds. 
uh, bring someone with you. But I start a new message series next week, and it's called Out of the Shadow. We're really going to be talking about what it means to have deeper relationships uh, based on the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's based on those relationships, and we're extremely deficient in relationships in our world today. You and I ought to know more about relationships than anybody else on the planet because of what God has done for us. And we're going to talk about what it means to go deep with relationships. Would you stand with me as I close this in prayer today? Father, I want to thank you today that we have had this privilege of walking through a text, but also looking at a grid of where the world is today that we live in. Father, my prayer is that you will strengthen our dedication to your word, to your absolute truth, that we'll understand what's at stake, how they will make our decisions to anchor our lives on you. I pray for those in the room today that have never taken the step of placing their trust and faith in you with childlike faith, and they've never done that and trusted Jesus to give them eternal life, to forgive them of sin, but today they can do that. And I pray that you will lead them, convict them, help them make that decision. And then today as we leave this place, I pray, that, pray, God, as we look around us, we can look at the world through the lens of a biblical worldview. Help us know what that means, how that works. Thank you, Father, for giving us all we need to weather all the storms of life. Thank you, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.